Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2 is where we're going to be. And uh, we're finally going to look at the dream, Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Uh, we've been talking about the dream for months, it seems like. But finally, not really, weeks, but finally we're going to talk about the dream. And so as you turn there just to catch us up, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's had a dream and he doesn't want to just know the interpretation, he wants to know the dream too. He tells his wise men and his sorcerers, his magicians, he says, I don't, I'm not going to tell you the dream, you have to tell me the dream and the interpretation. And they say, this is not something we can do. And he says, okay, you're all going to die. And so, just very nonchalantly, apparently, um, and that included Daniel and his friends, unfortunately, because they were wise men too. They were considered um, those sages, the, the wise men of the land. And so Daniel asks for time to seek the Lord about it. And God comes through, big surprise, right? He comes through with the dream and the interpretation. So uh, after thanking God, he goes to the king and he gives all the credit to God. And I love what he says in uh, verse 28 of Daniel 2. But there is a God in heaven. And I love that phrase. To me, that's the phrase uh, that sums up this whole chapter. That's the message Daniel wanted the king to get. He says, you can't trust human resources, but there is a God in heaven. And he has all power and he has all knowledge and he cares about people so you can trust him. And so that thought leads right then into the interpretation and as we read the dream, I want you to think about this, this idea. Um, Daniel's premise is this. He leads into the dream with this thought. There is a God in heaven. Almost as if to say, you think what you dreamed is great, but it's just a statue. No, there's a God in heaven that's greater than what you dreamed. There's a God in heaven and there's none as great as him. I want you to think that thought as we get into the, into the reading. Let's stand. Daniel chapter 2 verse 31 again. There is a God in heaven and there's nothing as great as him. Verse 31. Thou, O king, sawest and behold a great image. This great image whose brightness was excellent stood before thee and the form thereof was terrible. This image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay and break them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together and became like the, the shaft of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them, and the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So that's the dream. Daniel just told the king, here's what you dreamed, and he's right. Verse 36, this is the dream, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Thou, O king... Art a king of kings, for the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power and strength and glory, and wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven hath he given unto into thine hand, and hath made thee ruler over them all. 
Thou art this head of gold. So he starts explaining. So here's the statue. It starts with a head of gold. King, your kingdom is represented by that head of gold. And the king is probably thinking, oh yeah, that's right. We're on top. We're made of gold. This is a good dream. And then verse 39. And after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee. And another, another third kingdom of brass which shall bear rule over all the earth. So the king's like, what? Wait. So I thought you were saying we're the king, I'm the king, and our kingdom is gold, and we're on top. Well, apparently not for long. Verse 40, and the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things, and as iron that breaketh all these, shall it break in pieces and bruise. And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided but there shall be in it as uh, in it of the strength of the iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men. But they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. And it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands... And that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. And the dream is certain and the interpretation thereof sure. Wow. There's a lot here. Do you completely understand what's going on? Good. Well, I don't have to... Explain it, right? Okay, good. Well, let's pray and be dismissed. Well, no, it's not that simple. There's a lot going on here. There's a, and I would say this, there's a lot of greatness in this account. There's a lot of big stuff. There are powerful kingdoms. There are mighty kings. There are world powers. There are kingdom takeovers. You name it, it's as big. But in all the unfolding drama of the dream, there's really only one truly great character and it's not the statue. No, the only one truly great character is God himself. And tonight I want to look at this thought, the not so great, great image. The not so great, great image. They thought the image was great. Nebuchadnezzar thought the statue was great. Turns out, compared to God, it is nothing. And I want to think about that, look at that tonight. Let's pray. Lord, we need you. Pray that you bless the reading of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Sure, appreciate your standing. Um, the king's dream here is a glimpse into the future. Everyone's in a prophecy these days. It seems like there, you know, there are books all over Christian bookstore shelves and there are movies about the end times and being left behind and people like to talk about the end times. It's intriguing and there's a lot of speculation 
And the book of Daniel actually is a vital piece to the biblical prophetic puzzle. And we won't look at all of that tonight. God reveals to Daniel some important events of the end times later as it relates to Israel and the tribulation and the second coming. We'll get to that later in the series. But we get here our first glimpse into prophecy in the book of Daniel. And Daniel starts by telling the king what the dream is. We already read it. He tells him about this impressive statue. There's this great image, it says. So it must have been tall. It was, it was imposing. It says that its brightness was excellent. So it must have been impressively shiny because of all the, the precious metals and that it was made from. And we see that it, the form, it says, the form thereof was terrible. This is all in verse 31. So it's a great image. Its brightness is excellent. And the form is terrible, which means it was terrifying. It was, it was an imposing and intimidating statue. And I want you to then think then about what, the, what Daniel said were the parts of the statue was made of various metals. The head was made of gold. The torso and the arms were made of silver. From the belly down to the thighs was made of brass. The legs were made of iron. And the feet were a mixture of iron and clay. So as we think about those metals being used, think about it. The value decreased the further that they went down. It started out with gold, then silver, then brass, then iron, then clay. But apart from the clay... The strength of the metals increased as it went down. Gold and silver get stronger and brass get stronger and iron especially is stronger. But the interesting element of this is the value and strength of this giant statue rested on a weak foundation. The feet of this statue, if the statue feet had simply been made of iron, it would have been a strong statue... But it was iron mixed with clay. Iron is strong. We know that clay is not. Clay is brittle. Clay is weak. And so there's a mixture of iron and clay in the feet. And we know that the two don't mix. And this, this image in the king's dream stands alone, uh, stands tall until a stone in verses 34 and 35. And we'll look at these as we go. The, the, the stone, it says it's cut out of a mountain without human hands. And I hope you already get the image here, the picture here. There's a stone not made with human hands. It comes flying out of the mountain and it hits the, the feet of the statue and breaks the feet of the statue. The statue falls down and when it does, all of the metals of the statue uh, break into pieces. They're no longer distinguishable. It all just becomes like dust and, and floats away. The illustration that Daniel is using is the idea of a threshing floor and, and chaff on a, flesh, a threshing floor. And, and back then, the, the method to use to separate the, the, the chaff from the, the seeds was called winnowing. And they would, they would take the, the, the crops and they would throw it up into the air or they would wave it in the air. And the wind would blow the, the, the chaff away because it was, it was light. It, there was nothing to it. There was nothing significant about it. But while the wind blew the chaff away, the seeds would fall to the ground. That grain would fall to the ground where they could pick it up. It's called winnowing. 
Well, apparently, in this dream, Daniel says uh, that all of the metals that fell down, when, when you winnowed all the metals, none of it remained. It was all like chaff, which the wind bloweth away. None of it stood. None of it remained. And there was nothing together when it fell to the floor. And the stone then that comes out of the mountain, not made with hands, it, it comes in it and it takes over that spot. It breaks the statue and all the stuff is blown away. And left in its place is this giant stone that basically is a mountain. The Bible says it fills the whole earth. So that's the dream, okay? You get it? All right, good. That was a lot. I mean, I think we understand the dream, but what does it mean? Well, I love it when the Bible explains itself. There's no speculation. There's no trying to figure out. Daniel gives the interpretation here. And I want to start by looking back up in verse 28. Again, my, the, my favorite verse in the, in the passage. He says, but there is a God in heaven that revealed his secrets. This is before he gives the dream interpretation. It says, and maketh known to the king Nebuchadnezzar. The next phrase is this. What shall be in the latter days? So Daniel tells the king, your dream is a glimpse into the future. It's a glimpse into what will happen in the latter days. Look at verse 29. As for thee, O king, thy thoughts came into thy mind upon thy bed. What should come to pass? What? Hereafter. And he that revealed his secrets maketh known to thee what shall come to pass. Do you understand? Are you getting it? That this dream is a glimpse into the future. This dream is, is prophetic in nature. It gives insight into what's going to happen in the future and the end times. And this dream is about the future world powers and how they will succeed one another by overthrowing each other. And before you think, well, you know, that's nice that the Bible says that. I want you to understand that everything that Daniel talks about is supported in history. This is not, the, the Bible never just gives facts and random things that nobody could ever back up. No, this, these details in this account can be proven through secular means. In fact, there are some liberal scholars who say that Daniel had to be written much later than what we think it was written because some of the details there's no way he could have known except that God was revealing this to him. So these details about the end times, um, this is God revealing to Daniel prophecy. So tonight I want to visualize the dream and we'll show that first slide. This is kind of, I'll just call it the title slide. And this is Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And again, in quotations, I put the great image. And if you, if you kind of just wrap your mind around it, um, what's happening here, you see there's a head of gold. And there's the torso and the arms of silver. And then from his abdomen down to his thighs is brass. And then his legs are made of iron. But if you notice in the picture, it's not real great there. If you notice, though, in the original image, the feet are made of iron and clay. There's a mixture. And you can tell the difference in color there. This is the image. Something like this is the image that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed about. And I want you, we'll start by just going down from the very top that the head of gold represents the Babylonian king um, under, uh, kingdom under Nebuchadnezzar. Look at verse 37 and 38 again. 
Thou, O king, art a king of kings, for the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power and strength and glory, and wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field, field and the fowls of the heaven hath he given into thine hand, and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. So the first singling out, the first, let's go to the second slide here. The first image is the head of gold. It's the Babylonian Empire. That's what it represents. And, and I put some dates there. 605 B.C. would have been around the time. And some of these would be maybe uh, approximate dates. But <coughs> 605 B.C. is, in my understanding, that's when Nebuchadnezzar, <coughs> excuse me, Nebuchadnezzar went into Judah and took Judah captive and carried them back into Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar's, though, his kingdom extended over much of the ancient Middle East. It went all the way from Israel to Babylon and north to modern-day Turkey. So you probably think, excuse me, need to take a drink here. <clears throat> so you probably think as you hear this, well, that's an impressive dream. I mean, I, I, Nebuchadnezzar's thinking, I'm made of gold. My head is made of gold. I mean, the, the head of the statue is made of gold, and that represents me. And you better believe it, we're a powerful nation. You better believe it, man. My kingdom stretches from, from what used to be Israel all the way to Babylon and north um, into Tur modern-day Turkey. At that, at that time, it's Turkey now. Um, it, but, and it was a very huge area that, that Nebuchadnezzar oversaw. They had conquered many lands. But I want you to understand the dream. As impressive as the kingdom was, Daniel makes it very clear that Babylon was not going to last. He makes it very clear that another kingdom will rise. Look at verse 39. And after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee, he says. See, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom would be overthrown by the Medo-Persian Empire, which is represented in the dream as the chest and arms of silver. So we'll go to the next slide. <clears throat> Around 539 B.C., so... A, a close to 70 years, which is, that, that fits with the timeline that, that God told the nation of Judah that they would be in Babylon. Um, there's, he says that it, it's silver represents this, we'll call it the dual Medo-Persian empire. So the Medo-Persian, and it says dual empire, because there were two kingdoms that came together and conquered the world together. The Bible in secular history confirms the Medo-Persian Empire succeeded the Babylonian Empire. If you go to 2 Chronicles 36, you can read about it. Actually, later in the book of Daniel, um, Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar's son, is killed when, when the Medes and the Persians uh, come into Babylon and take it over. And when the Persians take over, that's when uh, Daniel and the, the, and, the, and the people of Judah, that's when they had the option to go back to Israel, to back to Judah or Israel. Uh, because the Persians took over. So, so Daniel is giving insight into something that hasn't happened yet, but it actually happens in his lifetime. In Daniel's vision in, in Daniel chapter 8, the Medo-Persian Empire is represented by a ram. And, and in that vision, there's one horn is prominent and the other's not as prominent. And that, that illustrates the Medo-Persian, the Medes and the Persians. The Persian horn is more prominent because it was the more dominant of the two kingdoms. But, but that's the picture that you get in Daniel chapter 8. We're familiar with the phrase, the law of the Medes and the Persians. 
that's something you see in the book of Esther. You see it right here in the book of Daniel. This empire covered a huge territory. This was a powerful empire. It's represented again by the silver in the statue. History tells us that the Medo-Persian Empire stretched from northern Africa all the way to India and China. It was a huge area of land once again. And we say, boy, that's impressive that they could overthrow Babylon. It's made of silver. It's strong. It's beautiful. But I want you to understand, once again, this kingdom doesn't last. There's all this impressive shininess. The head of gold is impressive and shiny. It didn't last. The torso and the arms of silver are impressive and shiny. They took over Babylon, but they don't last. Look again at verse 39. And after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee and another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. So the third kingdom in this prophecy is represented by the belly, the abdomen, down to the thighs of brass. And this represents the Greek empire. We know this through history. The Greek empire was under the leadership of Alexander the Great. So again, before you think the Bible has no connection to reality, the Bible has no connection to secular history, we're seeing it right here before our eyes that the Bible supports it and, and history, maybe you should better, it'd be better to say history supports our Bible. It proves it to be true. So Alexander the Great marched against the Medo-Persian Empire around 332 B.C. and over the course of some battles eventually overtook it. And because of his aggressive leadership, the kingdom spread quickly. He was called Alexander the Great because he was aggressive. He had no fear. And it's said that he led his armies across the entire Medo-Persian Empire in 12 short years. Which is a pretty amazing feat in itself. In Daniel chapter 8 verse 21, it says the king of Grecia, it's mentioned there. And he's represented by a goat. In Daniel 8, verses 5 through 8, it makes it clear that it comes quickly, it comes with great strength, and it overthrows the ram, which we already said, the ram is represented um, by uh, the dual Medo-Persian empire, and this goat comes and overtakes it. We know that Alexander the Great is an incredible historical leader. Maybe you've read about him, I know most of us have heard about him. They called him great. But as great and as impressive as Alexander and his armies were, it did not last. And I hope you're catching the theme here. These things look so great. These kingdoms look impenetrable. They look powerful. Nothing can defeat them except they are all temporary. As we get into the next part of the, of the, the dream, the statue... We go from the brass in the torso to the iron legs. And this is the United Roman Empire. You know, iron is strong and it's a picture of dominance. It's a picture of power. So this next kingdom comes with force and it breaks in pieces all the other kingdoms. We know that the Roman Empire dominated the world. And apparently everyone thinks about the Roman Empire all the time. Which I did not know that. But apparently that's been a trend. People talking about that. I don't ever think about the Roman Empire, maybe I just am short-sighted, I don't know. But the rule of Augustus Caesar extended three and a half million square miles. And according to history, at its apex, Rome covered most of England, down into southern Europe, if you're looking at the map, around the Black Sea and Eastern Europe, around the Middle East, and all the way over through North Africa. 
a huge area the Roman Empire covered. And then to the east, it went all the way past Babylon or, or that area in the Middle East, all the way to the Indian Ocean. So the Roman Empire covered so much ground, though, that it became splintered. It grew to where it had two capitals. The western capital was in Rome and Italy. The eastern capital was in uh, Byzantium in modern-day Turkey, which became the, uh, the city Constantinople. And, and if you think about it, that could fit it with, with the two iron legs. You've got one in the west in Rome, one in the east in Byzantium. You've got these two areas, this vast area, and it covered so much ground that, that according to these verses, their, 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 their attention was spread so thin that it, be, it caused weakening. Look at verse 41. And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, uh, sorry, verse 40, and the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things, and as iron that breaketh all these shall it break in pieces and bruise. And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. But there shall be in it the strength of the iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. So because it covered so much ground, the Roman Empire experiences a weakening. And they, they mingled, it says, with the people of the lands that they conquered. Look at verse 43. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay... They shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. So uh, many believe that this is talking about Rome, and as Rome conquered, it tried to absorb the culture into itself. It tried to intermingle with the culture that it was, that it was conquering, that, that they would marry into the royal families of the kingdoms that they were conquering. But in trying to intermingle, it proved to be a source of weakness. So we go then to the next slide, which is the iron legs divided. The Western and Eastern Roman empires. And it, it, I, Wiersbe said this, iron represents strength, but clay represents weakness. Rome was strong in the law, organization, and military might, but the empire included so many different peoples that this created weakness. You, you see that even in Rome's dealings with Israel in the, during the life of Christ, that they were trying to keep the people happy. They weren't, just, they weren't just ruling. They weren't just you know, saying this is what we're doing. And, and you know, They were trying to make people happy and please everybody. And, and, and there was an issue and that, that caused weakness in the Roman Empire. And the rulers tried to be the law. They tried to keep people happy. Christ's death actually fits into that narrative. They were trying to keep the people happy. So they allowed them to choose Jesus Christ to be crucified. And we know that Rome still has its influence. The Roman Empire is not what it once was. But if you think about the Roman Empire, it led to the birth of Western civilization. In his commentary on Daniel, James Combs noted that the Spanish, the Portuguese, the Dutch, the French, the German, the Russian, the Italian, and the British cultures could all trace their roots back to the Roman Empire. And so to that I say, well, that means that we as the United States of America can too. Because we trace our roots back, many of us trace our roots back to Europe, 
And uh, that's where, uh, you know, the, uh, those that were fleeing the, the, the oppression, the religious oppression in England came over here. So listen, at its peak, the Roman Empire was impressive. It was significant. But it, too, did not last. And there's one final part of this kingdom that's yet to be fulfilled. And, and we've already read about that. Let's go to the next slide. It says, the iron and clay feet... See, at some point in, in the future, then the, we see the, we'll see the end of this dream take place. Look at verse 40, 44. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all their kingdoms. And it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. And the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof sure. These feet and the ten toes that he's talking about, they're mentioned separately. And the thought is that this corresponds to the coming kingdom of the Antichrist. And we're going to look at that as we go through Daniel 7. We get to there later. It talks about the ten horns, which represent kings. But this kingdom, it's strong and weak at the same time. And it, it's in the days of those ten kings and kingdoms that we find out here that Jesus Christ will come. And he will finally set up the kingdom that will stand forever. Jesus Christ is referred to, we know, as a stone in both the Old and the New Testaments. And, and so don't overthink it by saying, well, this is just a spiritual kingdom. No, of all these other kingdoms, they were all literal kingdoms. So we can assume, folks, that one day God will set up a literal kingdom on earth and all of these other world powers that have seemed so strong and so permanent and they're going to last forever and no one can overthrow them. No, there will come out of a mountain a stone not made with human hands. That is Jesus Christ himself. And he will come and he will smash all the earthly kingdoms to pieces and set himself up as a stone like a mountain. And he will be the one left standing in the end. And that's where we see then the final piece of this with our last slide. God's kingdom. It's established on Jesus Christ and it will never be overthrown. Aren't you thankful for the truth and the message of this dream? Who thought that a pagan king thousands of years ago could get a, give us a dream that gives us confidence that one day Jesus Christ will come and set up a kingdom on earth that cannot be overthrown? This passage teaches a premillennial second coming of Jesus Christ, meaning there will be a kingdom on earth that takes place for a millennium. And Jesus Christ will return to earth to overthrow the kingdoms of this world. He will establish his kingdom and like a giant stone it will not be moved. He will not, by the way, he will not build on their foundation. He comes along and he knocks that statue down and they blow away like chaff in the wind. And left in their place is a giant stone upon which the kingdom of God will be built. And I just say to that, boy, that gets me excited. Maybe you're, though, wondering, okay, great, but what does this have to do with me? Well, I want you to look at King Nebuchadnezzar's response. Look at verse 46. Then the King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and worshipped Daniel 
and commanded that they should offer an oblation and sweet odors unto him. Now, he's a pagan king. He doesn't fully understand how to express his gratitude. In his mind, I'm going to worship Daniel for what happened here. But I do believe, I don't know if Daniel said something to him. Um, but look at verse 47. We see that he starts to get it. The king answered unto Daniel and said, Of a truth it is that your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets, seeing thou couldst reveal this secret. You know what I imagine happened? That the King Nebuchadnezzar said, boy, this is amazing. And they start to worship Daniel and, and give sacrifices for Daniel. And he says, oh, wait, 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 wait. Now, remember what I said earlier? There's a God in heaven. And the only reason that I could give you this interpretation is because of the God that I serve. Because in verse 47, now we're seeing what Nebuchadnezzar says. He's not talking about Daniel anymore. He's talking about Daniel's God. He says, of a truth it is that your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets, seeing thou couldst reveal this secret. See, I really believe in this moment, if you would have asked Nebuchadnezzar whose kingdom he should live for after hearing the interpretation and understanding it, I believe he would have said, you know whose kingdom I need to live for? I need to live, live for the God of Daniel. That's who I need to live for. Because I know, based on the interpretation of this dream, that my kingdom, as strong as it seems, it will not last. And I know that the Medo-Persians, when they come along, they seem really strong, but that's a kingdom that will not last. And I know that when the Greeks come along, it seems super strong, but it's not a kingdom that will last. And I know even the great Roman Empire, when those legs of iron, when it comes along, it looks so strong, but those feet of clay are its downfall. And it will not last either. So I believe in this moment, Daniel's thinking, or Nebuchadnezzar's thinking, there's one kingdom I should live for, and that's for the, the God Jehovah. He gets a glimpse into the temporary nature of earthly greatness. And he recognizes that only Jehovah is truly great. There's one kingdom that matters and that's God's. And in the end there's only one kingdom that will be left standing. So the question tonight is why are we so consumed with the kingdom at hand? Why are we so consumed with this kingdom that we see around us every day? Because folks this kingdom will not last I mean, we're potentially reading about our own downfall right here in Daniel chapter 2. We live for this kingdom, though. We, this, I mean, maybe we, it's better to say we live for this culture. It's, it's not a kingdom. It doesn't last. It's a culture. It's temporary, but we live for it. We want to be comfortable. We want to make money. We want uh, to enjoy our lives. We want to have the pleasures of life. We live for work, and we live to be entertained. And the vast majority of our lives are lived consumed with a culture that is temporary but we so often prioritize the temporary culture when God has a permanent kingdom to invest in see you can live for this culture and in the end all that you live for will be like that dust the chaff it'll blow away in the wind or you can live for God's kingdom and in the end have God's blessings and eternal rewards that last forever. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. I heard someone say one time. 
something along these lines. I've adjusted it, but it says the world promises gold and leaves you with dust. But God takes you from dust and brings you to gold. So I'm asking you tonight, which one are we better off living for? A culture or a kingdom? A culture that is temporary. A culture that will not last. A culture that will blow away in the wind someday. Or a kingdom like a rock that stands forever. You know, sometimes it seems like the world is winning, doesn't it? But here's perspective. One ends in dust. The other ends in gold. So which one would you rather live for? A culture or a kingdom? See, let Daniel 2 remind you. And sometimes you look at prophecy and you're like, what is the message? And sometimes it's hard to make application. This one is so easy. Let Daniel 2 remind you that the culture is only temporary. It will not last. God, in the end, will be the one left standing. So I'm encouraging you tonight. Put him first. Live for God. Do what matters most in his kingdom. Serve God first. Tell others about him. Learn about him. Love what he loves. And all the things that we do, I mean talking about work and and talking about sports and hobbies and recreation and entertainment and whatever it is that we live for. It's not like those things are wrong, but if those are in the middle of your circle, if they are the core of who you are, then you are living for dust. And you could be living for gold. I think about parents with our kids. We can send the message so often that culture is more important than kingdom. But we need to reverse that and make sure they know it's kingdom over culture. Okay, in our entertainment at home, kids, parents should say this. It's always kingdom over culture. And I know what culture is trying to get us to watch and what culture is trying to get us to do. But it always needs to be that kingdom makes those decisions for us. When it comes to sports, you know, it's amazing how sports take up so much of our, of our kids' lives now and that there's practices on Wednesday and games on Wednesday nights and practices on Sunday and the ball fields are full on Sundays. No, if you want to raise children that grow up for a kingdom instead of a culture, then send the message early on. You can say, yeah, you can play ball, but you're not going to play ball on Wednesday nights because it's kingdom over culture. And you're not going to practice on Sundays if it's going to make you miss a service because it's kingdom over culture. And in our house, listen, we love you and we want the best for you, but what's best for you kids, in our house, it's always kingdom over culture. That's our motto, that's that's our lifestyle, no matter what happens in priorities. Listen, even in academics, academics are good. I'm not saying these things are bad. We want our kids to do well. We want to raise them up and and, and, and have them be successful. But even in, in academics, it's kingdom over culture. Meaning there are times where you're like, okay, they have so much homework. Just stay home tonight and don't go to church. Don't do your, just do your homework. Get it done because you've got to get good scores and you've got to get good test grades. And uh, listen, I understand there's pressure there. But, it, but I really believe if you will prioritize kingdom over culture, God will bless your children and help make up for the time maybe they didn't have to study because you prioritize God in their lives and they saw it. Amen. Work, school, whatever it is. It should always be this, kingdom over culture. And that's just one application. We can apply this in so many ways, but I just want to wrap it up by saying we can live for dust or we can live for gold. Which one would you rather live for? You want to live for dust or you want to live for gold? See, the image in the king's dream was great for a moment. But really, let's be honest, it was a not so great, great image. 
because it was temporary. And my challenge to you tonight is this. Don't give your life to something not so great. Live for gold, not dust. There's a God in heaven and there's nothing as great as him. And in the end, he'll be the only one left standing. So why would you give your life to invest in things that in the end won't still be standing? Prioritize God in your life, kingdom over culture in every decision, and watch God bless your life, not only right here, but when you stand before him and he says, you prioritize my kingdom, and you have rewards that you wouldn't have had if you had to live for the culture. Choose to live for gold rather than dust. That's the message I get out of this, and I hope it's a help to you tonight. Let's stand together. Let's stand together. We'll have a verse of invitation. I know it's a lot of information. I tried to get through it quick. Maybe go back and read it at some point. See how the Lord speaks to you and, and how the application comes to you through this. But I really do believe that every one of us have applications when it comes to the question, am I living for the kingdom or am I living for the culture? And it should always be when it comes to God's people, it's kingdom over culture for me. Is it kingdom over culture for you? Heavenly Father, we need you. We pray that you'd help us tonight uh, to be sensitive to your Holy Spirit in the way that he's illuminated this truth to us. Help us to, to apply it in ways maybe that weren't even mentioned. Help us to seek to apply this truth to our lives this morning, this evening. In Jesus' name, amen.